Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent uh, by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with our reading of step number five on repentance and his description of the penitential monastery for those who had broken their vows called the prison. And uh, last week, we, we finished reading about the story. Uh, and I think uh, everybody could tell is sort of a challenging thing even to listen to. And it's interesting though, how the tone of the step begins to change uh, from here on out, that uh, he begins to examine a little bit more about repentance itself and the mourning for one's sins and, uh, and what the uh, attitude of our heart should be or the mood of our heart as we enter into this. And it's certainly a lot softer than what we were hearing in the prison. So it's a curious thing. You know, I think he was preparing us, us for uh, sort of having a clear conception of sin and its impact upon our lives and creating within us a hatred for it. And then he moves into repentance and seeks to foster uh, an attitude of hope in God and trust in him, even if we were to fall each day, uh, the important things becomes our turning back to him. And so we're, again, we're on paragraph 30 on 106. Do not be surprised that you fall every day. Do not give up, but stand your ground courageously. And assuredly, the angel who guards you will honor your patience. While wound is still fresh and warm, it is easy to heal. But old, neglected, and festering ones are hard to cure and require for their care much treatment, cutting, plastering, and cauterization. Many, from long neglect, become incurable. But with God, all things are possible. So interesting. You know, certainly, as I said, after reading about the, the prison, and the depth, uh, depth of their uh, penance there, and uh, the, the mourning, the depth of their mourning, uh, to have John take us in this direction here, that even if we are to fall every single day uh, of our life, uh, and if we repent and turn back to God with a kind of courage, the, the guardian angel, the angel that watches over us, looks upon us with a kind of joy, and he says here, we'll, we'll honor your patience uh, that will intercede on our behalf because of our uh, patience in the struggle uh, with our own sins. And also, I think, for our humility, the willingness to turn back to God, even if afflicted over and over again. Eric, did you have a question? You have to unmute yourself. Thank you. Um, in the Byzantine uh, liturgy for the uh, anointing of the sick, mm -hmm. there is a saying of Jesus that is not found in the Bible, uh, which goes, uh, as many times as you fall, get up and you shall be saved. Mm -hmm. And it's a, I think it's a beautiful uh, little saying. Uh, and uh, I think it's very uh, apropos to this mm -hmm. um, to this paragraph. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, I, I think so, so much of the liturgy and 
so many of the prayers of the sacraments are consistent with this spiritual tradition and the, the language used there. And so it's not surprising to me that we would find something very much along the lines of what we're reading here now within the, the prayers offered uh, during the liturgy or for something like the, the healing of the sick. And, um, and so, again, uh, welcome to those who just joined us. Uh, we're on page 106, uh, paragraph 30. Uh, and so very, uh, a very gentle turn here, an encouraging one for us and, uh, and an encouragement to, to turn back to the Lord very quickly, that when, when there is a fall, that uh, it's easier to heal if we turn to God immediately and uh, have uh, the healing balm applied, as it were. But if we wait for a longer period of time, it becomes much more uh, difficult. And, but even at the end of this, even, even those uh, wounds that have been long neglected and seem incurable, that with God all things are possible. So even when we get to this point where we think uh, our sins are incurable or that we've struggled with them for just too long, um, that God has the capacity to help us overcome the affliction of, of certain passions that perhaps we've been rooted in for our entire life. In an instant, uh, by the action of his grace, he, he can cure us. Uh, and so this is why we would want to remain hopeful in the struggle as well as humble before God and constantly turning to him and, as, and turn to him as quickly as we can. 31. Before our fall, the demons say that God is a friend of man, but after the fall, that he is inexorable. So before a, a fall, the demons are encouraging us. Oh, yes, God is ever merciful, you know, that uh, not to be worried about this kind of sin or this kind of negligence in the spiritual life. So go ahead and follow uh, your desires. But the moment that one falls, the demons quickly become the accusers. And uh, in order to seek to draw us into a kind of despair and despondency to keep us from repenting. So uh, it's the, they're very astute in that regard, you know, that in the face of sometimes the shame that one might experience, that it can be easy to draw a person into despondency. And of all the things that we struggle with, that is often the most difficult to overcome that our sin can loom so large that we can lose sight of the mercy of God. And so then become uh, stuck, as it were, within it. And so John is saying, you know, don't let yourself be tempted in this regard to lose hope, lose hope in God. And uh, to think that he will not hear your entreaty. Number 32. After your fall, do not believe him who says to you of small shortcomings, if only you had not done that great fault. But this is nothing in comparison. Often small gifts appease the great anger of the judge. So that um, often the evil one will seek to convince us 
that certain things are uh, of no, no matter, that they're insignificant in, in the eyes of God. Uh, and uh, to, uh, and then likewise, to, to have us think that uh, if, let me hold on for one second. Sorry, folks, I'm struggling either with a cold or allergies here. Uh, let's see what he says again here. Uh, if only you had not done that great fault, but this is nothing in comparison. So almost uh, to distract us away from the small things and to have us focus on the larger things so as not to, uh, to seek forgiveness or not to make some act of reparation for the smaller things that we've done. Uh, often as it is in small steps that we make our way back to God. And so in the face of maybe what would be considered smaller sins to, to make that movement toward, toward him. And so I think any way to disrupt that movement uh, the the evil one is anxious anxious to uh, to do, and so to twist our thinking uh, about the nature of sin and its gravity or lack of gravity, and uh, in order to to keep us in the same place and keep us from turning back to God. Any comments so far on these three, couple of paragraphs? Thirty-three, he who really keeps account of his actions considers as lost every day in which he does not mourn whatever good he may have done in it. So every day for us is this opportunity for repentance, uh, of, of a turning back toward God and of mourning our sins, not only those of the day, but recognizing that even the perfect, the man who is perfect, sins seven times a day, that uh, perfectly sins, even a virtuous man will often sin in ways that he's not completely aware of. And so our fundamental attitude throughout the course of every day would to be to mourn our sins and allow that mourning, which he'll describe in future paragraphs as a kind of uh, joyful mourning that draws us back into the arms of God that we would see every day as wasted if we have not maintained the spirit of repentance, of turning toward the Lord and seeking his mercy. And uh, that th this is what draws us in into his life. The humble, contrite heart is what is pleasing to God. And so when we lose sight of that and that is not the way that we are looking at our life or spending our time, if that's not the focus of our life, then we've, we're, we're wasting time, as it were. And uh, this is an important thing because I think their, their constant and unceasing prayer is this uh, prayer that is you know, the most fundamental kind of creed, Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging Christ as our savior, as the source of our salvation. And then calling out for, for his mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so to ceaselessly have that on our lips, uh, acknowledging who Christ is to us, but also asking for his grace. And uh, what he'll get into in the coming paragraphs and the coming steps 
uh, are often the ways that the, the evil one will uh, seek to, again, distract us from this movement toward God. And uh, if you remember, you know, their, their understanding of repentance isn't simply over a particular sin. It is this constant movement that we are seeking to make toward God, of moving, of redirecting ourselves to him in every way. And because of our sin and our attraction to the things of this world, we often lose sight of him. And so this gentle movement of repentance is what we are to foster with a kind of constancy. Let no one who laments expect assurance at his departure, for the unknown is not sure. Spare me through assurance that I may be refreshed before I go hence unassured of salvation. Where the spirit of the Lord is, the bond is loosed. Where there is profound humility, the bond is loosed. But let those who are without these two assurances make no mistake, they are bound. And so where the spirit is and where there is humility is where we are assured, not, not, where, not by what we do, so much as, again, this fundamental attitude and the gift of the spirit uh, that lifts the heart and fills the heart with peace, the peace of Christ. And these are the things that give assurance to our hearts, not simply our rationalizing uh, uh, certain things about God or about our life or about sin, but something far more concrete and experiential in our relationship with God that we are turning to him with humility, that we are seeking out his need, and that we also begin to experience the action of his spirit within us, which is one of hopefulness and peace. Those living in the world, and they only, are strangers to these two assurances, and especially the first. But through almsgiving, some so run the race that they know at the departure what their gain has been. So those who show mercy uh, towards others, then as they draw close to death itself, uh, receive a kind of assurance from God that you know, those who are merciful will receive mercy. So even if they're lacking in these fundamental ways of humility, and the, and the peace of Christ that flows from it, this attentiveness to others in our life, this mercy that we show to others and whatever their need might be, is uh, that will, which will make appeal on our behalf at the moment of death. It's the poor that become our advocates uh, and you know, whether they're poor in spirit or uh, whether it's physical or material, poverty, when we've shown mercy, when we've lifted others up, it is this action itself that will assure us and give us hope. So a distinct tone, I, I imagine that your shift, I imagine that you're picking up in this part of the laddering and certainly in comparison to the prison. He who grieves, 
for himself will not know another's grief or fall or I'm sorry, grief or fall or reproach. A dog bitten by a wild beast becomes all the more furious against it and is driven to implacable fury by the pain of the wound. So one who knows the affliction of his own sin, and this is where I think we do gain a little bit of an insight into the, the pain, the mourning of those within the prison. Those who are focused upon uh, the, the wound of their own sin are not going to be attentive to others in the sense of uh, scrutinizing them or judging them. And the image here is a very powerful one that, you know, when a wild beast has been uh, bitten, he's going to become all the more uh, furious about it because of the pain of his own wound and will be fo focused upon, upon that and not be aware, you know, of others ar around him. And, uh, and so this is, to, again, to be our spirit as well, that our mourning over our own sin should be such that we are seeking the remedy for it, uh, certainly in turning toward God uh, and in the sacraments, but also in seeking to engage in the spiritual practices that pull us away from the sin and bring about uh, the healing of the passion within us. And so what we hear in the fathers over and over again, not to, to judge others, even if we see with our own eyes uh, them engaging in something that is overtly sinful. Uh, because on one level, we, we don't know what truly is within their heart and uh, what God himself will do providentially uh, in responding uh, to their fall. But if we're aware of our own, struggles and our own wounds, we're, we're not going to be focused upon others. There's always going to be with the spirit of meekness and humility that we're going to look upon others. Number 37, we must carefully consider whether our conscience has ceased to accuse us, not as a result of purity, but because it is immersed in evil. A sign of deliverance from our falls is the continual reckoning of ourselves as debtors. And so, you know, if we have to be very careful that uh, sometimes we will become so familiar with being locked in this pattern of sin, and especially if we're negligent in, in any way, that we might not feel the sting of it. Our conscience might be dulled and uh, it might not rebuke us with the strength that it once did. And we might confuse that kind of internal peace of mind with, with purity of heart. And so, you know, what delivers us from this danger, John tells us, is that where we always see ourselves as debtors that all that comes to us uh, from God is by, by his mercy and his graciousness. And, uh, and so our attitude should be that of, of the workers, that we've only done, uh, we are worthless servants, we've only done our duty, as it were, that we, we haven't accomplished anything 
again, that has earned us that mercy, that ours is always simply a response to God's graciousness and in a spirit of gratitude. And so if we have this gratitude, then it's going to drive out uh, this, this sense that we are, are pure of heart. You know, on, on some level, we'll know better. Sydney uh, Moran wrote, were, were the men in the prison still under any obligation to recite the Psalms or something like this? Yes, very much so. I mean, that from what we read, that their prayer was to be continuous. And so it was the work that was set up for them and the oversight of the elder was to keep them in constant prayer, whether it was psalmody or uh, if it was the Jesus prayer. Uh, but the work was, in particular, was manual, you know, to, in order that they might be constantly focused upon God. Number 38, nothing equals or excels God's mercies. Therefore, he who despairs is committing suicide. A sign of true repentance is the acknowledgement that we deserve all the afflictions, visible and invisible, that come upon us, and even greater ones. Moses, after seeing God in the bush, returned again to Egypt, that is, to the darkness and to the brick-making of Pharaoh, who was symbolical of the spiritual Pharaoh. But he went back again to the bush, and not only to the bush, but also up the mountain. Whoever has known divine vision will never despair of himself. Job became a beggar, but he became twice as rich again. So, you know, that e even if we are brought low and we are reduced to uh, the circumstances of, of, of a beggar, uh, in, in our own poverty, uh, you know, he uses Job here, uh, you know, in this affliction of losing everything. And, uh, and if that were the case, you know, for us as well, if we feel so that we've lost everything, that we've been diminished completely by our sin, that we are not to despair, that uh, even if we go back, as it were, under to where the tyrant is, the Pharaoh, internally, uh, uh, that sometimes God, through his great mercy, will draw us up even to a higher place, higher up the mountain, or as with uh, Job, you know, pour upon him even greater blessings after the complete loss that he experienced. So in our struggle with sin, that we might find ourselves being, you know, brought back under the tyrant uh, again and again. Uh, but if we are repentant, if we do trust in the mercy of God, that he can bring us back to a, a higher place of virtue than before, before the time that we had sinned. And so, uh, you know, God often in his providence will allow us to experience a certain fall precisely for that purpose. You know, especially when we are plagued with pride, will allow us to experience a humbling fall. And in doing so, uh, raises us up 
when, when we turn back to him to a greater state where we're free from that. Uh, and this often happens to those who have made great progress within the spiritual life. Uh, you know, there's always this danger of attributing it to ourselves and our own discipline, you know, the goodness of our own will. And uh, we, we begin to lose sight of God. And again, lose sight of ourselves as debtor. That our, again, fundamental attitude is to be that of gratitude towards God, realizing that you know, every breath comes to us from, from his grace. And then certainly every moment, uh, even if we uh, are, do not fall into sin, is because of the grace that he's provided to us. And so there, there's never really a time in our life where we don't see ourselves as debtors because we've received something from the hands of God, either his mercy when we've fallen or the grace that is necessary to rise to the heights of virtue. It is all something received from him. Any thoughts or comments so far? Give me a chance to blow my nose. Um, okay. All right. Number 39, in the case of cowardly and slothful people, the falls that occur after our call are hard to bear. And I'm, I'm sorry, they crush the hope of dispassion. I'm sorry, I, in the case of cowardly and slothful people, the falls that occur after our call are hard to bear. They crush the hope of dispassion and persuade us to regard our having barely risen from the pit of sin as a state of blessedness. Look, look, for certainly we do not return by the way we went astray, but by another shorter route. And so, you know, if we are slothful or cowardly, uh, we might feel crushed by our falls, thinking that uh, we are reduced back to the beginning. And, and, and far away from what it is that we are seeking within the spiritual life, which is dispassion or freedom from the passions. And so John, this is actually, he's actually being encouraging here and saying that, look, if you fall, it doesn't negate all that God has done within your heart. And that the path back to that virtue is not going to be the same one uh, from where you started, that you are going to start from where, where God places you, uh, not having lost everything and not having lost the grace, the wisdom that God had bestowed before. And so to turn back to him, to enter again back into his good graces, you know, we are often lifted up to a higher place than, again, before where we had fallen. And so, you know, that's pretty common you know, as a priest to talk to people to feel that after a fall, that, you know, that their, their spiritual life or their prayers or their fasting has all been for naught. That, that it has all been lost or that the, the fruit uh, of that is, has been proven to be something of little worth or meaning 
that is that the meaning and value of that was negated that it proves them to be hypocrites and so it's an incredibly powerful temptation uh, to lose hope at that point to think you know there's no possible way at this age or after this great fall that I can be brought to the goals that I had set out uh, to uh, to acquire in the spiritual life. Any thoughts? Nobody's had this experience before. <laughs> okay. Number forty. I saw two men traveling to the Lord by the same way and at the same time. One of them was old and more advanced in labors, but the other was his disciple, and soon outran the elder and came first to the sepulcher of humility. So you see a little reference there to Peter and Paul running uh, to the tomb, and uh, that the younger one is driven by something greater and so reaches the tomb more quickly that Peter's laboring under uh, you know the, the burden of his betrayal of the Lord whereas John was driven by this love for the Lord and so when he hears uh, of the, the Lord's resurrection you know even though he you know th thinks it's the rambling of, of these women who went to the tomb he still runs with the swiftness of a friend when called and uh, so john sort of picks this up in his own way and says that age isn't necessarily the uh marker of one who has grown in the spiritual life or has acquired the the heights of spirituality that it's humility and so even though one might be younger and start out as a novice under someone might outrun the one who had been placed in their charge because of that humility that it becomes the quick quicker path to the lord uh both because it conforms us to him so so greatly but it's also uh, uh you know opens the door for his grace then to exalt us to lift us up he who humbles himself will be exalted in the eyes of god so daniel um mm -hmm. sorry i didn't have this typed up um but it was just a thought it's really on the last thing you said maybe it's more a question um than really a comment but like um um is it is it sort of that um i forget what you said sorry this isn't well thought out um but how he says look look for certainly we do not return by the way we went astray but by another shorter route is it possible um that part of it too is that you can fall along the way because um, I feel like it can get easy to almost prioritize seeking after, if you're seeking after virtue, like in a sense that in a very subtle way, almost like 
the phrase making spiritual gains gets used, you know, that like somehow it's about gains and progress and virtue, like you're, like you're collecting them or something. Right. And, and, and like not on purpose even maybe, but like a, it's, it's still as shift off of, of Christ as, mm-hmm. as that end result, right? Like even when the end result is a good thing that you're desiring in a sense, not Christ. Does that make any sense? Yes. You know, and I always become a little suspicious of, you know, spiritual spirituality or spiritual programs that are put forward that are too programmatic, you know, in terms of what they'll accomplish in an individual. And, you know, when we begin to shape our spiritual life in accord with our own will or our own judgment, our thoughts, rather than uh, humbly following the guidance uh, of, of another, or s- simply in a spirit, uh, hum- spirit of humility, keeping our our focus upon Christ, uh, and allowing ourselves, you know, to trust in His providence, even though He leads us along a difficult path, or one, or gives us a particularly heavy cross to bear. That uh, when we begin to sort of take up our spiritual life and shape it, it's going to inevitably it will take us longer because we're not taking the straight, straighter path toward the Lord, which is humility. And so we might be engaged in the spiritual life, but perhaps we end up wandering in the desert like the Israelites for 40 years because we're, we're guide, self-guided and or we're guided by a spirit uh, of pride. And, uh, but in it, again, when we are humbled, uh, and when that illusion breaks apart and we simply have to cling to God and trust in his providence, often then he can bring us very swiftly along this other path to him. And, uh, you know, it's, I think in the spiritual life as in anything else, we can be willful. We can be willful about how we engage in our prayer from day to day, from the disciplines that we take up and, uh, it arises again out of our own judgment or w- what is pleasing to us or what we think is holy and good and true, then, then really allowing ourselves to listen to God who might draw us along a path that is less attractive to us or appealing to our sensibilities and or put us in a place that doesn't offer us you know, the consolation that we would desire or recognition or allow us to do the work that we would feel would be most fitting or where our talents and gifts will be appreciated. You know, and so when we begin to walk along that path, you know, we rarely want to walk along that same path that our, our Lord walked, you know, which is one of you know, the self-emptying and obedient uh, love for the Father and obedient to His will, um, and you know sometimes it takes you know our falling and rising and falling and rising perhaps over and over again until that illusion does break down, and then we simply cling to God and and listen to Him and allow to, allow Him to take us by the hand in His providence and to guide us, and it might be along surprising paths that we never imagined for ourselves or where we can't really see what the fruit of that will be 
why, why would God put me here or in these particular circumstances that are challenging or don't seem to have any particular meaning for, for me? And when we can hold on to God when in those realities, you know, that often a deep and enduring kind of humility began to, to emerge. Uh, SM, I'm not sure who, who's that, but uh, oh, Sister Mary of our Divine Savior from Salt, uh, quoting Second Peter, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, and then turn away from the holy commandment passed on to them. Uh, of them, the Proverbs are true, a dog returns to its vomit, and uh, a, a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. So, right, so, you know, often when self-guided, we, we will return as a matter of habit uh, to the things that are most familiar to us, and in particular to the, the things that are, are sinful. Well, you know, we'll go back to the mire until we come to see it for what it really is. Mark Cummings. Hey, Father. Um, so, you know, this whole section, you know, remind me of kind of just things I've read about uh, purgatory. Mm -hmm. I actually had to go back in the section after reading some to remind myself that it wasn't actually him describing purgatory. Mm -hmm. um, and, and also, so these are some random thoughts. And then I feel like he covered several of the Beatitudes and um and also covered you know the seven deadly sins to some degree and also some of the virtues so this was really rich for me and the one thing that like um you know when i look at the beatitudes and i think about blessed are the poor in spirit um and the you know i i have um you know i I pray the litany of humility pretty much every day for over a year. I don't do it as much now, but it was quite helpful to me. And because pride is insidious and, um, but, but where I get caught up now is, you know, kind of being steady in my poverty versus some despair over, you know, my sins and my failings and um i just don't sometimes i just don't know how to deal with that and um i don't know maybe maybe somewhere in this in the letter of divine ascent it will be helpful but most of the time i feel good about it you know like i feel like i'm understanding it and i'm not in a state of despair but even talking about a state of despair bothers me like uh, you know like i feel unsteady i don't i don't yeah maybe you could help me with that well i think that's an interesting thought you know that comes to mind even talking about falling into despair is makes me feel unsteady and uh, because i i think that's what it does to us it makes us un, unsteady uncertain as if we're not on solid ground and in, in some way 
And so, you know, he often talks here about how the evil one will switch his tactic on us and how swiftly and uh, and which can be confusing. And so if we, we haven't built our life or our house, as it were, our heart on solid ground, on Christ, but in particular, I think upon the virtue of humility, we experience that uh, that unsteadiness. And as you said, you know, started out saying, you know, one of the litanies that I would say every day was this litany of humility. And I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It clarifies things so powerfully that it strips away that illusion. And, uh, you know, I think when we think about stripping away illusions as, as being something that's, you know, unsettling. And, in, you know, in the same way that the evil one will unsettle us, but it's not true. I think you know, once it's pulled away from us is when we are drawn into the truth. And, uh, and there we begin to experience uh, the, the true rock, Christ. You know, when we let go of the illusion and we rest upon him and have our dignity, our identity found in him, is when we lose that unsteadiness. And so intuitively, I think you were doing what God was leading you towards, which is, you know, pray this litany of humility, because this is the sh short path for us and the surest path, and what ultimately is going to, to bring peace and stability in my life. It's when we gradually move away from that uh that we get caught up in the, this illusion again that we are building something you know simply from our own efforts where we lose sight of the presence and the grace and the mercy of god in every breath and in every action that we take and so it's it's not as though we even have to be sort of pharisees about it i think it's just that our ego uh takes center stage and we that in such a way that we lose sight of god and and so in, in so many ways the evil one seeks to draw us back towards ourselves even in, in our sin you know to become an accuser to keep us from focusing on god to calling out to him uh and so he's either drawing us to satisfy ourselves or pulling us away from God into despair. And so that path of humility, I think if, if you're wondering, okay, what, what can I take away from this or John? It's that, that humility provides the hope that even if we were to fall every single day of our life, it's the humility in turning back to God that places us back on that solid, solid ground. And that's where we started out tonight in paragraph 30. You know, uh, if you were to fall every single day and get up uh, courageously, then your angel watches over you, guards you, and is filled with a kind of joy over that reality. And, you know, I think that's why those who are the grave sinners in Jesus' time uh, responded to him in, in the way that they did. And the measure that they did, they had no illusions about themselves, even though their lives were, you know, 
not pretty and you know that they were really at the margins of of certainly of the of the life of the faithful and uh living disreputable lives you know they knew the poverty of their own sin and so when they they encounter he who is love he who is mercy it awakens something within them because they again they have no illusions about their own sinfulness and its poverty whereas those who were kind of self-righteous and who you know had built this kind of sanctity up around themselves by fulfilling these minute prescriptions that they had surrounded the law with that gave them this kind of certainty or certitude about themselves they could they could not recognize christ they didn't feel that they there was a need for repentance or a need for mercy and so when mercy stood before them they, they could not see it anthony writes the prayers attributed to saint basil and the publican's prayer book are examples of deep self-knowledge and poverty they inspire me in self-knowledge and contrition yes the publican's prayer book is beautiful for that reason uh, the prayers of the fathers found within it so it's again you know it's interesting i think john had to do what what he did and i think we see jesus doing the same thing in the gospel you know striking against a hard shell of pride you know that maintains this illusion and the story of the prison sort of breaks that down and shatters that and and shows us the real poverty of sin and uh and what true mourning for it looks like and then john makes this movement to say okay how do we navigate our life and it and we navigate it with this absolute trust in the mercy of god and humility that we you know keep our eyes fixed upon christ and if necessary we repent every single day of our life so okay let's see number 40 no number 41 but all of us and especially the fallen Beware lest we sicken in heart from the disease of the atheist origin. For this foul disease, by using God's love for man as an excuse, is readily accepted by pleasure lovers. So Origen, or those who followed after him, uh, put forward this uh, notion of what's called apocatastasis that in the end all will be saved including satan himself and so while on the surface it seems to focus upon the goodness and the mercy of god and even on one level seems to reflect what god says or what christ says in in the scriptures it's god god's will that all be saved that this is what god desires but uh john says we have to be wary of allowing this then to become an excuse for our negligence in the spiritual life that you know 
don't use what you see within the scripture then to become sedentary in the spiritual life that this grace is offered to us to be embraced and you know not to be as it were neglected or buried in the ground and unused wayne oh did you put a You have to unmute yourself. Wayne, do you have a question? Yeah, I typed it out farther. Oh, you did? It didn't send, come send did you send it? Oh, yeah, to you. Oh. I didn't send it to anybody. Okay, I'll just read the question out farther. Then. Okay, I don't see um, it. Yeah. Pardon? Did you, you see it? I don't see it. I'm sorry. Okay, fair enough. Okay, is, is it pride then that this is going back to what you said before about pride? Or is it the question is, is it pride that we cannot accept the, the mercy of God, especially after a fall? Mm -hmm. is, that, is, that, is, is that what is that? Then? Because you've done something wrong or the fall, and you're saying God's mercy is there, but some people perhaps can't, may, may not accept God's mercy. Right. Or, I find, think, or find, it, find it difficult to, to, uh, to accept it. That's right. You know, I, I think sometimes in a sense of shame that we can magnify, not only through the temptation of the evil one, but uh, simply because of maybe our temperament itself, magnify the sins that they loom so large that they become greater than the, the mercy of God. And so all that we can see is that sin. It becomes so big for us that it blocks our vision and again, you know, this is another reason why there's this desire for constancy in, in prayer and acknowledge the Jesus prayer in particular of acknowledging Christ as Savior, as Redeemer, and calling out to his mercy, for his mercy, that even in the face of those feelings and the weight and the burden of our sin, you know, to be calling out to him. Uh, opens up that that door to our experiencing his mercy and being lifted out of you know the darkness into which it draws us. Sue and Mark. Okay, um, I'm gonna. I'm going to talk about um, like what Wayne said, where he was kind of talking about there being a lack of hope. You have this sin and then you're trying to have a lack of hope because shame can magnify it. Um, my trouble with the prison was because when I listened to that, what I heard was a lack of hope in these guys. These guys were so obsessed with, with what they were doing. It was almost as if, they didn't believe that God had forgiven them. And I had to wonder, was there a, a priest there to hear their confession? Did they not believe in the mercy of God? There seemed to be an atmosphere of despair in there to me. And I know that um, hope is something that I struggle with. So maybe that is why I picked it up. And I found it particularly horrifying when these guys... Um, when somebody was about to die and he would lean over practically in this poor fellow's face then you know and say do you have any hope is there any sense that you've been forgiven and sometimes they would say yes which would 
make people feel better. And sometimes they would say no, that they had no sense of that at all after all of this. And almost as if they were in despair. And then sometimes these bodies were thrown out to the dogs. And I'm just was really horrified by that. And I I just think something's I think it I'm sorry, I think it's off. I think it's there's something in there that's a little off. And I had to go back and I reread it. And it didn't seem quite as bad on the second reading, but um, I had to really go back to the Evergatinos and just recall um, the, the story where the two fellows were going off to commit some sin in the city and they repented and came back and they were given the same um, penance for a year to be locked in their cells on bread and water and um, making a uh, uh, penance for that sin which they had committed and the one came out all gaunt and and weepy and cry you know and uh, you could see that his body had suffered greatly and the other one came out pretty hale and hearty because he had spent his time making acts of thanksgiving that god had forgiven him that god had saved him and that god had brought him back to the monastery and he was so grateful and um my I, you know, sometimes I look at that and I just wonder, some people do better maybe on that kind of mourning and weeping, and maybe some of us need to have more Thanksgiving, and I wondered if you could answer that, or maybe I'm misunderstanding something in the prison, and maybe it's just that I have trouble with hope, and so I find this particularly horrifying. Thank you. I'm so sick, I'm going to have to sign off right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a firm, you know, after reading the fathers for many years, you know, I think what I've come to see and understand is that you have to wait and listen and to see things within their context. And depending on the, the nature of the writing, you know, the Evercatinos is, you know, its focus and the approach of the author is unique there and beautiful. And, you know, he writes, uh, puts forward various hypotheses and then brings the father's writing to bear on, you know, his, on his main point. And, uh, and even some of those stories were equally as difficult and challenging uh, to read and understand, wrap our minds around it. With John, you know, I've read it over and over again over the course of the years, including the story of the prison and, uh, but with all of his writings, in each step, I've, I've felt that, and I've had to tell groups, okay, I, I know that you're going to walk away from this agitated, and that's okay. And, um, you know, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you. And so, you know, I, I think if anybody read the story of the prison, and said, oh boy, that's great. I want to go there. Let's, let's make a pilgrimage. You know, there'd be something a little, you'd sort of look at the person and say, you know, what, what's up with you? And, you know, I think in reading John in particular, you have to follow along his thought. He's taking you along a certain journey, uh, along, you know, up this ladder. And he also does it within each particular step. And so he defines 
what repentance is for us. And then he, began, he gives this illustrative story that is jarring in every way. And what I said the last time and the time before that is that I, I really believe that John is painting an image for us of the darkness of sin and the darkness into which it draws man, man. And, uh, that, and more than that, that he's drawing us in to the very mystery of the cross itself. When we see Christ, when the sin of the world is laid upon his shoulders, you know, we're drawn into the mystery of the Garden of Gethsemane, the sweating blood, uh, the, you know, the, the darkness and sense of abandonment on the cross where he cries out, oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the, this thirst uh, that he experiences, all of it. And, you know, it's, John, it's from taking us there first then that John is able to present us with the, the fuller picture but not without allowing us and making it clear for us the, the nature of sin and why, <laughs> why it should be hated, but also the, the great mercy of God in, uh, in embracing our humanity uh, and do, doing what St. Paul describes as he who knew no sin was made to be sin. You know, that thrust upon him was the reality of sin and all of its fullness, precisely that we might not fall into despair. And so I think John wants us to see that darkness and uh, uh, of, of not only sin, but also the nature of mourning over it as those who truly understand what it is to turn away from this redeeming love that has held back nothing from us and desires to share with us the fullness of eternal life and love. It's only really from this perspective then that I, I think that we can enter into all of these sayings that we are considering now and understand their import and real meaning. And I, I think we really only need to look at our own generation and how we often approach the spiritual life, the lack of sense of urgency, the lack of clarity about the need for, for repentance and the, central, the lack, the centrality of, of asceticism, that Christianity is an ascetical religion, that it is an exercising of one's faith. And that means living our life in a particular kind of way and, and a clear understanding of what it is to live within this world, the embattled nature of it. And this is what we really, I felt, saw within the Evercatinos, in particular in uh, the hypothesis 28 and 29, that our life in this world is not a feast. You know, we are allowed to participate in the beauty of that in anticipation and in through the Holy Eucharist. We're drawn into it. But our life in this world is a constant labor and a labor of love, but nonetheless a labor and a spiritual battle. 
And I think if, if we lose sight of that and we make light of sin, as we, we so often do, and we see what generations of making light of it has done, you know, where there's a distortion of reality altogether, how that becomes problematic. And so I, I don't, you know, I don't think John presents us with it without purpose. I don't think John would present us with the image of, of the prison without this purpose of awakening within us the horror of sin and what the mourning is that then eventually leads to the joy, the sorrow that precedes the, the joy of, of experiencing God's mercy and forgiveness. And, you know, I know that's not, you know, I don't, I don't think it's anything that I could speak to that is going to be convincing. I think this is something where, where one really has to read deeply, but more than that, pray very deeply in the sense of having a clarity of you know, the, the poverty of one's own sin and the need for God's mercy. You know, and part of it too, you know, tears are a gift from God having, you know, this true experience of the weight of our sin, but also a true appreciation of the mercy of God allows those tears to flow freely. I, I don't disagree with any of that at all. But there was just portions of that in there, which it just seemed to um, contain a despair. And um, what looked to me like despair. And I found that very disturbing. Right. And, and, and I would say good. I mean, I think on some level, we are brought to the edge of despair in order that we might see, look into the abyss, the darkness of sin and what it brings to the world and potentially to our own life, to look into hell itself. And to, to see what, what it offers us, a life given over to sin. And, you know, I think these were, were men who had already tasted something of the, the sweetness of the joy of, you know, of living in this intimacy with the Lord as well. And had, you know, through their breaking of their vows, knew the weight and burden of that. And they knew the weight and the burden of it because they understood and could see, you know, clearly the love of God and what he offered. And so, you know, when they fell away, they could see into the darkness of the abyss. And, you know, there's part of us, and I get it, there's part of us that does not want to look into that abyss. It's fearful. And, you know, I think even in our day-to-day -day life, we will rationalize all certain things about God, ourselves, sin, particular path that we take or don't take, you know, our lack of zeal for the Lord, our lack of zeal for virtue, our lack of hatred for sin, our lack of responsiveness to prayer. And uh, so we have almost, we almost have this infinite capacity for this kind of rationalization. And I, th I think, John, by allowing us to gaze into this 
pit or this abyss of darkness, then wants to etch something very deeply within our hearts so that we, as we make our way forward in, in this struggle with sin, that we are, are being drawn by the love and mercy of God, but we're also being uh, thrust forward by the truth. And I think that's what hanging a cross in one's home does. You know, in gazing upon the cross, we see the we 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 see the reality of sin and its cost. We see our Lord pinned naked to the cross, dead. And in that, we also see the love and the mercy of God. We see both things. And so I think John is saying the same thing to us. You know, uh, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, a crucified savior, one crucified under the burden of our sin. And again, the, you know, so often we, we want a Christianity without that cross. Daniel. I was thinking about a lot of the same things actually that Sue was um, earlier, including like the um, same passage from the Evergetinos and whatnot. But what I what it, what came to mind for me was that I think it's like Edith Saint Edith Steiner or Saint Teresa Benedicta said something like about if if one only understood the gift of the cross, one would cling to it, mm -hmm. and and it you know it kind of like changed the way I maybe saw a little bit of it where it was, these are people who are, who are clinging to the cross and not fleeing from it. Um, and it's, and it might be really extreme, but a cross is probably going to feel and appear, you know, like a cross, um, extreme. And there was just one other thing. Um, there's a book and I'm forgetting it may, it might be called, we shall see him as he is. Um, it's by, um an eastern saint um Sophroni. Mm -hmm. and in it he talks about kind of his life and um how for much of his life he um like was possessed by a not possessed but like in a negative way but by by like a spirit of holy despair he called it which is the first time i have heard the word holy linked with the word despair and then he said later in his life he 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 has lost that and he was afraid. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, I don't know how that's relevant, but it, it just like when, when this can look like despair, it made me think of his words where he said that he, for many, many years, he, and he came to see it as a gift of holy despair. And so much so that when he no longer had that despair, he saw it as a loss. Right. Yeah. And this is why, you know, Elder Sofrony only would come to understand that through experience and coming out the other side of it and seeing the providence of God and the hand of God. And, you know, this is where we have to suspend judgment and listening to John, you know, as he talks to us about not only the prison, but the nature of repentance, remembrance of death which is the, the next step. 
and uh, beyond that, where does he take us? Just sort of, uh, and then uh, on joy, the joy making morning. You know that for John, this is the essential journey, and it's in making the journey that clarity comes. And I think in our reading, we want to make that journey the best that we can with him. That for Elder Sophrony, that experience of this holy despair, as doubt was experiences being holy to him as he was experiencing it, you know, is only when he came to see the fruit of it, or maybe even when it ended, that he saw, okay, on some level, that probably made him cling to God in this way that from his own perspective and judgment, he never would have. And the same for all of us. I think if we follow along and allow John to lead us, he's going to show us some things that are not pleasing to us. And I think the Lord does the same thing in our own life as well. Uh, but to ultimately to lift us up. I mean, think of what John is doing here, you know, this repentance for the prison, and then uh, he you know, modifies it here in order that, and fleshes it out for us that we might not get caught up in that uh, image so much that it pulls us down. But then he takes us a step further, the constant remembrance of death, and then finally, he can bring us to this step on, on this sorrow that leads to joy, compunction, penthos, you know, the, what, what it ultimately does for us. And so I think we have to, just like in our day-to-day -day life, I think we have to wait upon the Lord and allow him to illumine the, the path for us. So, all right, it's 8.40, so we're gonna stop there. And uh, I apologize, I, if I wasn't as sharp tonight, uh, just a little under the weather, but uh, we'll get back to it again next week. Hold on, everybody. Just allow yourself to walk this, this path and you know, be present on this journey. Okay, why don't we close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God.